Amen, amen. Wasn't that awesome? Wow. It's awesome to hear, uh, man, just the worship in this room. I know the worship at home. I heard you. I don't know if you know that I heard you, but I heard you, and you sounded great. I know the kids didn't think you sounded great, but I thought you sounded great. I want you uh, to know that. I want to ask you a question as we dive into our passage, as we kind of are in the middle of John chapter 10. I want to ask you uh, this question. How do you know, or when do you know that somebody loves you? What are some signs, some markers, some moments, some events, some experiences that you have and you can say, man, this person loves me? Or, or maybe think of it on uh, maybe switching the roles there. Like, what, when, when are you loving someone the most? If you think of, think of yourself loving somebody else, when do you know you're loving someone the most? When is your love on uh, largest display? Okay, or, or we can even back up on kind of a, a third-person view. When you're looking at a couple, when you're looking at two people, when do you know that they love each other? When can you see? What would be an event, a marker, uh, uh, an experience that you can observe and you would say, man, aren't they in love? My wife and I, we just celebrated our 15-year anniversary in August. Yes, very exciting. Uh, she has put up with me for this long. The grace of God manifests, right? Long-suffering. You thought the wilderness wandering was rough. Uh, try being married to, to Paul, right? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough burden, but she has, she has walked through it. But we were kind of reminiscing, as we do oftentimes on our anniversary. We were, you know, uh, in the front seat of our Sequoia enjoying sushi. Thank you, COVID-19. Right? But that's how we experience our anniversary. And we were, you know, as we're eating our sushi in between the rolls, and I'm not going to tell you how many rolls that we ate, because when we eat sushi, man, you would think I was a sumo wrestler. I mean, I just go after sushi. I'm a big fan of sushi. And as we're eating our sushi, we're, we're bringing up these moments, moments we knew that we loved each other, moments that are clear markers of our affection, our commitment, our devotion to one another. And I thought it was interesting because the moments that we picked were very different from each other. I'll give you an example. Some of the moments we picked were very romantic moments. Very romantic moments, whether it be like a, a surprise home-cooked meal, or it would be a surprise vacation, or, or even a song specially written for the proposal, right? These romantic Moments. These were clear markers, probably the first thing we would think of when we were thinking about someone's love for someone else. The, the clear markers of our affection for each other. I would call it the, the poetry, if you will, of our relationship. But what was interesting is other stories came up, other experiences, other events. And they're very different from the romantic, very different from the poetic, very different from those those what we would see as kind of a standard show of affection. We also brought up moments of pain, moments of suffering, moments of agony, trials, burdens, dark times. And we even saw in those moments how our love for each other deepened, how, how the vulnerability of those moments only grew our affection for each other. We sacrificed for each other. One of us was strong when the other was weak. We carried each other through the dark times of our life. It's interesting how you have these kind of 
polar opposites, right? The poetic, the romantic, the magnificent. But then you also have the painful, the, 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 the moments of sacrifice, the moments of hardship, the moments of trial. And both of them display love. And both of them display affection. And this is not only true of our love for our spouses or our love for our family or our love for our friends, but this is true of the love of God for us. This is true of Jesus' love for us, and this is going to be on full display in our passage this morning. Jesus is going to describe his love for his people. In this passage, he's going to call them sheep. He's going to describe his love for his people, and it is going to be poetic. I mean, it's going to be magnificent. It's going to be, you could say, romantic. He's going to describe it in, in, in a poem, and we'll see this in our passage, a poem that's not stylistically complex, one that could easily be outdone by a romantic author, but the content of his poem, the content of his love, surpasses any, any romantic author's description of affection. You're going to be overwhelmed by the poetic nature of Christ's love for you. But on the other side, he's going to speak of the pain. The pain of his pursuit of us. The agony that he would endure, the sacrifice that he would take on, the price he would pay to make sure the relationship endured. There's going to be pain and there is going to be poetry. Let me show you this. John chapter 10. We're going to start with verse 11. John chapter 10, starting with verse 11. And before we jump in and I read that passage, let me give you the big idea for this morning, which I think is the main idea of Jesus' kind of message to his audience in our passage this morning. So if you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. Love is a poetic and painful pursuit. Love is a poetic and painful pursuit. It's poetic, it's romantic, it's magnificent. It is described in a way that will just overwhelm us, will be overtaken by it. Jesus' love for us is poetic, but it's also painful. It's painful. He experiences great personal pain. He experiences great amount of agony, a great amount of suffering, great amount of sacrifice to see that relationship endure, to preserve and to redeem that relationship, to keep his lover, if you will, in the arena of his affection. He will endure much. His love for us is a pursuit, a pursuit marked by poetry and by pain, by the romantic, the magnificent, and also by hardship and great trial. Let, let me show you this. John chapter 10, starting with verse 11. And what Jesus is going to do, he's been highlighting his kind of love, affection, and treatment of his people, of his sheep, if you will, and he's contrasted that with the religious leaders. The religious leaders of the day who said that they served the people, but they actually didn't. Jesus called the religious leaders thieves. He's called them robbers. He's also called them murderers. And Jesus, again, is going to continue the indictment. He's going to say, you don't love the sheep. You lack love. This is why you're thieves and robbers and murderers. This is why you seek to profit from the sheep. This is why you seek to profit from the people, and you don't really love them. And then he's going to launch out and display his love in a very vivid way. But look at Jesus' indictment first of the lack of love, the lack of love that the religious leaders have for the people. 
Look at verse 11. Jesus says this, John chapter 10, verse 11. It says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own, sorry, I am the good shepherd. I jumped down. I, I am the good shepherd and I lays down my, his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, this is when Jesus is speaking of the religious leaders. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, he sees a wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees for the wolf snatches them and then scatters them. He flees, why? Because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. So what does Jesus do? Jesus goes on this kind of indictment, this accusation, this charge against the religious leaders and he says, you know what you're like? You're like a hired hand. Now, Jesus used the story of sheep and shepherds. He's continuing this analogy over and over and over again. He kind of switches the story with us a little bit. Sometimes he plays a different role. But there is all these other roles that are mentioned. Strangers, thieves, robbers, murderers, hired hand. And all of those characters represent one group, the religious leaders. And every single one of those characters has one thing in common. They don't care about the sheep. They don't care about the sheep. He describes it here as there's, they're a hired hand. This is a new character. This is a new character in all the stories that we've gone through. We've talked about how in the ancient world, a, a town shepherd would come in the morning. And he would call all the sheep. He'd go up to every home and he would knock on the door. And he would gather the two or three sheep that the family would have in the courtyard near their house. He would call them out, and he'd bring out those two and three. He'd go to the next house, and he'd knock on the door, and the person would say, oh, this is the town shepherd, probably a boy of one of the families that lived in the village. And he would continue this process. This was his morning work until all the town's sheep were with him, and he would lead them out into the open country, and they would graze. Now, Jesus uses a character here called the hired hand. What is that? That means this village didn't have a boy didn't have a family member who can do the task of the village shepherd. Maybe all the other boys were busy with their fathers in other different kind of work, whether it be maybe they were fishermen or maybe they were carpenters or something like that. So they couldn't give themselves to take care of the other sheep. So they hired somebody out. They, 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 they look for a freelancer. Okay, we don't know anybody in the family who can do this. Let's contract somebody. And it says this hired hand, he's different than everybody else, and we would see this. The sheep maybe are people he's in charge of, but they're not his. They're not sheep from his house. He doesn't just maybe know the families around him. He's a hired hand. And what happens with this hired hand? He sees danger, and what does he do? Peace. I'm out. Right? I'm done. This is getting too crazy. I'm leaving. And so what's his motivation? Self-preservation. Right? If I see a wolf, I'm gone. We, we went hiking and we took our dog. Our dog's just a little dog. It's a half corgi, half wire terrier. Super fast dog. I, she's like a Porsche is what I call it. She's got these short corgi legs, so her center of gravity is literally like three feet in the ground. But she's a terrier, so she's got all this energy. I mean, a lot of energy. But you can't catch this dog. She is so 
fast, and she can corner, she can break your ankles like Allen Iverson. I mean, she can just leave you on the ground because when she turns, there's no way you could catch up because she's so low to the ground. And as we were hiking, I thought to myself, man, if I saw like a mountain lion or if I saw like a cougar, or I, I mean, I don't know, I'm not, I don't know what lives wild in Northern California besides turkeys, you know, and different things. But if I saw an animal, what am I going to do? I'll tell you right up front, I love my dog. I am not protecting that dog. One mountain lion, I'm like, go get him, Leia. Daddy's out, right? You go off, you fight them. Daddy's going to preserve the other, <laughs> the other babies. That's what daddy's going to do. If there's danger that's coming, right, I'm not going to be the one to fight. I'm not going to be the one who does that. And this is what he describes here. Now, Jesus mentions only one wolf. And it's saying plural. It's not a pack of wolves. He just says it's one, one wolf. That's it. Now, if you were entrusting your sheep to this man, you'd want him to put up a fight, at least, right? I mean, just one? Just one wolf right there? Just one? You gotta fight that guy off? And this was the normal understanding and the normal practice in the first century world. We know this. If we look in Jewish law, in the Mishnah, it tells us this. Hey, if one wolf comes, you gotta fight. You gotta fight. And if for some reason that one wolf was to take a sheep then that shepherd is liable for the damages. He's got to pay up. But then it says in the Mishnah, now if there's two wolves, then you're good to go. It's over. Like there, 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 there's a limit to what you should do. And Jesus describes here, hey, there's only one wolf. So if you're in the audience right now and you're hearing Jesus say this, you clearly see this shepherd has not done his job. There's a reasonable limit, a reasonable limit of what you should do when you fight off wild animals. There's a reasonable limit. But there, there's only one you should do something. So the audience that Jesus is speaking to would know the religious leaders that Jesus is likening the hired hands to. They're not doing their job. All the audience would see that. Then Jesus launches into his love. And this is where I think Jesus' audience would think he's crazy, irrational, irresponsible, mad, reckless, you could even say. Because what Jesus is about to describe his relationship to the sheep is something that no shepherd in the first century world would ever conceivably do. This is where we get to the pain of Jesus' love. We said love is a poetic and painful pursuit. Look at this. Go back to verse 11. Verse 11, where Jesus first, first speaks of his relationship to the sheep. What, sheep. what does Jesus say in verse 11? I am the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? He says this. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Not in the first century world. His life? Let's just take that sentence. Lays down his life for the sheep. No, no shepherd in the first century world would actually lay down their life for sheep. That's crazy. One, it's irresponsible. If I die fighting off the wolf, what does that mean for all the other sheep? They're food now. 
right? If the shepherd dies, now all the sheep are in danger. There was a sense in which, yes, you should fight. You should fight off anybody who would endanger the sheep. You should fight. But there was a limit to this. And it was clear that giving your life was something that no shepherd practically would ever do. Why? Because it wasn't loving to the other sheep. If the wolf kills the shepherd, all the sheep now are left in danger. If the wolf gets a couple of sheep, the shepherd can still protect the other sheep. And Jesus says here, I'm the type of shepherd that's willing to give his life. But Jesus takes it further than that. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Notice the, that word there, that phrase there. I lay down my life. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is not saying, well, there may be a potential risk. I'm going to put my life on the line to protect the sheep. If danger comes, a lion, a bear, a wolf, I'll fight. I'll fight to the death. That would be crazy enough. But Jesus doesn't use that language. He doesn't say, I may lose my life. I'm willing to risk my life. This is a possibility that it could happen. What does he say? I lay down my life for the sheep. What is Jesus talking about there? He's talking about intention. I willfully lay down my life for the sheep. He's not talking about something that could happen. He's talking about something he actually does. This shepherd sacrifices himself, gives up his life. What? If you're, if you're listening to Jesus now in the first century world, this is where you're scratching your head. Hold on, Jesus. This is irrational. No one would ever do this. No one would ever do this. This is irresponsible. You'd leave all the other sheep in danger, and it's irrational. Why would your life be worth that of a sheep? Why would a human life be worth the life of a sheep? Why would you intentionally lay down your life? Why would you go through this pain? What would motivate you to do that? Why on earth would you see that as a smart, reasonable thing to do? It makes no sense. What would motivate you, Jesus, as the shepherd to do that? Well, that's what Jesus tells us next. And this is where Jesus unpacks the poetic nature of his love. He's going to unpack further in our passage even more the scripture of the kind of pain that he's willing to endure for the sheep. He's highlighted that already, saying, I'm willing to lay down my life, to lay down my life intentionally sacrifice myself. But why would he do that? His audience is begging for an understanding. This doesn't make sense to us. This is not what we've seen. No shepherd would do this. So Jesus, what motivates you to do this? And then Jesus describes, it's love. Love makes me do this. Look at this poem that Jesus delivers. This is in verse 13. Sorry, verse 14. Listen to this. Very simple poem. You can sense the rhythm, the repetition of words, Again, stylistically, you're not going to be amazed. You probably created a haiku while you were in high school that's more impressive stylistically than this. But look at the content of what Jesus gives here. Look at verse 14 again. 
I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Do you see the rhythm there? I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know, know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. You see the repetition of words, the changing of objects. You see kind of the parallelism, the rhythm of the passage. Again, it's not complex. It wouldn't probably get an A in a poetry class. But what is Jesus describing here? Jesus is explaining why would he painfully protect the sheep? Why does he lay down his life? Why does he do that? Because he loves them. And how does he love them? He repeats that word, I know my sheep. My sheep know me as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Now, why does he use that term, know? What is he talking about there? He's not talking about knowledge. He's not talking about awareness. I'm acquainted with my sheep. There they are. One, two, three, four, five. No, that's not what he's talking about. This idea of knowing in the scriptures means love, means intimacy. I'll give you an example. First book of the Bible, book of Genesis. It says Adam knew Eve, and then she bore a son. What is that talking about? Nobody's willing to say. <laughs> we can go through the birds and the bees. We can do that, but there's some kids in the service, right? What does it mean, Adam knew Eve? Does it mean, oh, I'm aware. There you are. You're in attendance. Check. Garden of Eden. Two people. Does it mean that he's aware that she's there? I'm acquainted with you. There you are. What does it mean? Adam knew his wife, and then what happened? She bore a son. There's intimacy there. It means relationship. This is what he's saying. When he says, the Father knows me, it's not that God the Father is aware. Hey, there's God the Son. Been here since eternity past. No, it's saying he has an intimate relationship with the Son. And the Son has an intimate relationship with the Father. He's talking about love here. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Now look at the description here. Now look at the comparison here. Jesus trying to show us why would he lay down his life for his sheep. He's trying to show us the motive behind his painful pursuit of us. His motive behind sacrifice. So he says it's love. It's knowing my sheep. But then he looks for a comparison. This is what great poets do. Great romantic poets do. They draw our minds to this comparison. And they use it to elicit in us a, a kind of emotional response. When we see them compare, say, the depth of their love to the ocean, right? Or, or, or the faithfulness of their love to the North Star. Or, or, or the passion of their love to the heat of the sun, right? It does something in us. What does Jesus do as he describes his love? What comparison does he use? Does he use the depth of the ocean, the height of the mountains, the heat of the sun? What does he use? I need to describe for these people how much I love the sheep. What could I liken it to? What can I compare it to? What does Jesus do? Jesus stretches the comparison beyond the natural world. Jesus stretches the comparison beyond time. What does he say? As the Father knows me, and I know the Father. What is he saying there? This is the Everest of affection. You can't go higher than that. 
There's no further than you can go. There's no superlative beyond this. There's no comparison larger than this. This, this, this dwarfs every romantic poet in, the, in human history. He can't go larger. He can't go bigger. He goes beyond time, goes beyond space, goes beyond creation, goes beyond anything that we have ever compared our love to. He says, you want to know how I love you? I love you like the Trinity loves each other, like the Father loves the Son, like the Son loves the Father, like the Spirit loves the Son, like the Spirit loves the Father, like the Father loves the Spirit. We love our sheep so much, and I can't find a comparison that works. The only thing I could find is the Godhead, is the Trinity, is the unbreakable, powerful, pure love of God the Father for me. How poetic. How magnificent, how, how overwhelming, right? There's the height of the romantic, intimate, affectionate display of God's love for us. And then he moves back into the painful. It's a poetic pursuit, but it's a painful one as well. Look at how Jesus goes back to describe this. Now that he gives them the answer for why he would lay down his life, Jesus is going to take that theme again, that theme of pain, and he's going to articulate it even more. Even more, he's going to illustrate why he is willing to die for his sheep. Look at verse 16. Or sorry, we're going to jump verse 16. We're going to go to verse 17. We'll come back to 16. Look at verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Now Jesus describes, I'm not just laying down my life. I'm not just talking about the cross. I'm talking about resurrection. I'm talking about Easter, not just Good Friday. I lay down my life, and it says, I will take it up again. I lay down my life, I'm in verse 17, that I may take it up again, verse 18. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. What does Jesus say over and over again? He's saying, I do it of my own accord. I have the, my authority to lay it down and, and, and take it up again. This is actually one of, one of the rare times in the New Testament where Jesus actually talks about his activity in raising himself from the dead. If you're familiar with the scriptures, most of the time it is God the Father who is the one that's described as raising Christ from the dead. But Jesus describes here, no, I'm the one that does that. Now they're working in cooperation. Why is Jesus emphasizing this? Because he's showing again, this is my relationship for the sheep. This is my love for the sheep. I die and I rise and I have the authority to do both. What does this mean that Jesus was not a victim of the crucifixion? He was the planner. He was the mastermind. The wolf didn't come in, and Jesus think, uh-oh, this may mean my life. I'm in danger. I may be a, a, a victim to his bite. No, that's, that's not what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't love the sheep to the degree that he would face danger that could hurt him. He loved this sheep so much he would, what, sacrifice himself, knowing the pain that he would go through. Jesus says, I have the authority to do this. No one takes it from me. You don't take my life. 
That's how it may look. But that's not what happened. We see this as we get through the Gospel of John. We'll see this uh, even in the arrest of Jesus. They'll come for Jesus. A big crowd of people. They've got weapons and everything. Which is kind of strange to take a traveling rabbi who doesn't have a weapon. A man only skilled in carpentry who can't swing a sword, but maybe a hammer. And they bring almost an army to take Jesus on. And they get there, and then Jesus identifies himself. You know what happens to the crowd trying to pursue him? They fall backward. Boom. What does that show us? It shows us that Jesus is the one in control here. Right? Oh, oh you came. Lights flashing, guns drawn. I display myself, you fall backward. Oh, you're not taking me. I'm allowing you to take me. It's a very interesting interaction in the trial of Jesus with Pilate, the one who has authority and power, at least he believes he does. At one point, he looks at the face of Jesus and he says, do you know I have the power to crucify you? Oh, he doesn't know what he said. He doesn't know who he's talking to, right? And Jesus reminds him, he looks right at Pilate's face, even though he is the one who's in chains, even though he is the one who is going to be crucified, even though he looks like the victim of this great mob violence. He looks at Pilate and says, you have no authority. You have no power unless it was given to you from above. Don't think you're in control. I'm writing the script. I'm writing the story. I'm the one who is sacrificing himself. This is not collateral damage. Right? This isn't me being a victim of your murderous plot. No, this is me sacrificing myself. I will endure that pain. And look at how Jesus describes that pain. He mentions twice that this is the charge of the Father, the command of the Father. It's not only in Jesus' control, but it's, it is divine approval from the Father. Look back again in verse, right there at the beginning. In verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. The Father loves me because of this. The Father will love me even though he'll see me crucified. At the very end of our passage, in verse 18, it says, this is the command, the charge I have received. The Father is involved in this. He's willingly giving up his Son, but we know it's even more than that. He is the one hurting the Son. The agony and the pain of the cross wasn't the pain inflicted by human hands. No, it was the pain, it was the crushing blows delivered by who? The Father. Look at this in Isaiah 53. A wonderful poem that describes the pain of the crucifixion. This prophetic image hundreds of years before the crucifixion, but as one who now know of the crucifixion, we look back and read this and see what else could this be describing but the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And this is how the New Testament authors saw it as well. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. To destroy him, to beat him, to break him. The crucifixion is a horrifying scene. We've seen it uh, cinematically displayed before us in movies, but all we could see is the physical. All we could see is what the hands of men could do, 
We couldn't see the spiritual. We couldn't see God the Father. We couldn't see the wounds that he inflicted upon the Son. And yet this is the true burden of the cross. It wasn't the agony felt by his nerve endings. It was the soul-crushing nature of the wrath of God laying on him the sins of humanity, a pain that no one has ever endured or will endure. This is the Everest of agony. There is no higher elevation of affliction. You can't get higher than this. Just as you can't describe his love for us any higher, you cannot have a greater sacrifice for the sake of love than the crushing blows of the Father upon the Son. Look at Isaiah, it says again, Yet it was the will of the Father to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now he speaks of what comes out of that. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. This is speaking of the resurrection. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. I think this is the moment of the crucifixion. This is when Jesus Christ is speaking of, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He knows the purpose behind the pain. He knows this means redemption. Even though he faces the agony afflicted on him by the Father, even though he is being destroyed, even though he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even in all that agony, he would see you in this pain. See your face. And say, I'll endure. That's how much I love them. It's not just a poem. It's a painful pursuit. It's not just romantic. It's not just a declaration. It's not just the I do's. Right? But it's the agony of the cross. I'll endure for them. Let's finish verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. He is taking on their sin. What a painful pursuit. Do you see why the shepherd would be so irrational? Irresponsible? Why would he lay down his life for the sheep? Because he loves them. He loves them. His affection for them is like the affection the Trinity shares with each other. The love he has for them would drive him to the cross to endure the greatest pain that anyone has ever known. This is why he runs and pursues his sheep. Go back to John 10 and look at verse 16. This is my favorite part of the passage. This is the pursuit. I said love is a poetic, we've seen that, and a painful, we've seen that, pursuit. His love isn't static or stale. It's not stationary. It doesn't sit there. It doesn't just speak lofty words and do nothing. It pursues us. And look at Jesus describe this as he's speaking out to this audience, probably predominantly a Jewish audience. Look at verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. What is he saying? There's an audience that hasn't heard yet. I have sheep out there. They're out there. And they don't know, know yet my poetic love for them. They don't know the painful love I have for them. They don't know what I'm willing to sacrifice. 
They don't know how large my love is. They don't know. So what must I do? I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Notice the urgency of Jesus. I must bring them. I must bring them. You see the urgency of our Savior? It's like you can feel, right, that he's talking to this audience, but he's not talking to them, kind of just staring at them this way. It's almost like he's talking at them and his hips are turned this way. Why? Because he's on the way, right? I'm sorry I need to deliver my message to you, but I've got other things to do too. There are sheep that are not here. And notice how they're already his. They're his sheep. He says, I have other sheep. There are sheep that are waiting to experience my love for them. So I must go to them. But in that urgency, there's not desperation. There's not the idea that he is going to fail. What does he say? And they will follow. They'll hear my voice. There's no chance of failure for the mission of the Son. Jesus doesn't think that he's going to lose some. And yet he still has great urgency for his sheep. I must do this. Love is a poetic and painful pursuit. And that idea is so overwhelming to us, right? So overwhelming to think that God loves me in a way that he can compare not to the height of a mountain, to the depth of an ocean, to the heat of the sun, but he loves me in such a way that it's the same or similar to the love that the Trinity shares with each other. That's how much he loves me. He loves me so much that he's willing to endure the greatest pain to redeem me. Isn't that overwhelming? Don't you want to just, just bask in that? Just, just kind of just sit in that, soak in that? This is how much I am loved, and it's also incredibly encouraging. How is it encouraging? Because Jesus says this love that he has will be completed. I must declare it to my sheep that aren't yet in earshot of me. I must go, and they will listen. They will hear my voice, they will follow, and they'll be a part of this flock, and they will be under their shepherd. That is so encouraging to me. Why is that encouraging to me? I don't know about you, but as I have prayed, maybe you're a leader and you've walked through our, our 30 days and we're praying for one, or maybe you're going to jump into that in March and you've thought about the one person you're going to be praying for, I know as I think about the one in my life that I've been praying for every single day, I've been praying for, for this month. This isn't a person that, that I'm unfamiliar with or they're unfamiliar with me. This is a person I've known almost all my life. A person I've prayed for, for decades. A person I've had conversations with about God, shared the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins on every occasion that felt very appropriate. 
Was it rude or, or a jerk or forced it into places that, that weren't there or the proper setting? But I waited for the right moments and I made a, I believe, a persuasive presentation. And I know, I know you feel the same sense of urgency in the mission of God. That this is the great must of your life. That just like the Savior, you could say the same thing. Hey, I'm here, and I'm with you guys, and I'm enjoying this, and I'm giving you this kind of teaching, but my hips are turned a little bit. I've got a place to go. There are sheep that don't yet know. There are people in Hercules, in Pinole, in Crockett, in El Sobrani, in Rodeo, in Vallejo. There are people in this surrounding area. There are sheep out there that don't yet know the love of the Father. And there is an urgency on all of us. And I know you have it. I know you have it. I know that must is upon you. You're not persuaded for the great must of your life to be, let me build up my 401k. Let me, let me get my retirement nest egg in, in proper place. Let me, let me pay off the mortgage. Let me refinance. Let me get in the right school district so my kids aren't around bullies, right? These are important things, but this is not the great must of your life. The great must of your life is what? There are people who don't yet know this kind of love. This powerful, enduring, eternal, pure love of the shepherd for his sheep. There are people who don't know it, and the great must of your life, the great urgency of your life is what? There are people out there that don't know it, that need to know it. And I know, I know, with that great burden, with that great urgency, there are times that we just fall under that weight. And it's almost like we lose certainty, right? God, are you ever going to do anything? It's funny, I like to talk to other pastors about the areas that they pastor in. I do, I enjoy it a, a ton. It's just it's fun to talk about the sheep that we have. And sharing kind of where we're at in Northern California, in the Bay Area. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to like Texas or Kentucky and these different areas, and I tell them where I'm from, and they're like, you guys have churches there? Like, hey, man, like, I feel a little insulted, right? That East Bay comes out of me. Hey, man, you know, I'm smaller than you, but my van's bigger than you. I'll hit you. You know what I mean? I may not be a big guy, but I got a V6, man, and it'll take care of you. I'll get you. It's funny, as we describe the area, as we describe the mindset and the worldview and all the stuff that goes on, it doesn't make me have disdain. It makes me sad, but I love it. This is where God wants me to be. This is not time to escape the Bay Area, find a safer haven and greener grass. No way. This is my Babylon, and I love my Babylon. I don't agree with it. I don't applaud every decision that it makes, but there are sheep here that don't yet know the love of the Father. And with urgency and with an imperative and with a charge, we would say, we are here for a reason. And it hurts. I get it. It hurts because it feels at times that we are failing. Right? I know there's this great must and this great urgency, but oh, Father, I've prayed for this person for how long and I've seen no movement. And what does Jesus say? They will hear my voice. There is urgency and there is certainty. 
the mission of God will be completed in the Bay Area. And our goal through the next 30 days is to join the very passionate pursuit of our shepherd to prayerfully say with urgency and with certainty, Father, give me one. Father, give me one. I can't wait to see what God does. I'll tell you what, the, the last 30 days has changed my heart. And I believe if you join us, it'll change your heart. We believe in it so much, we think it'll change your family. So we made another booklet. Why? Because we just have time on our hands. <laughs> we made another one. And I'll be honest, I really like this one. Very entertaining, a lot of colors. It captures my attention. But this is to, to get that passion in your children. To pray for those around them that don't yet know Jesus. And this is wonderfully done, but it's not the art that's most persuasive. It's the heart of our shepherd. Tell me, Father, love your sheep and say that there are some here that don't yet know your voice, but I want to call out to them and see them come. What an overwhelming passage. What an encouraging passage. And I think what a passage also that creates a longing. Right? Maybe you hear this description of love and you think to yourself, no self. No. You can't convince me to be loved like that. A love that endures. A love that is unbreakable. A love that is pure. A love that is powerful. No. Right? Maybe your story is filled with broken love. Whether a spouse or father, a friend, and there's a wound so deep you cannot believe that such a love exists, a love that loves this much, a love that speaks poetically of the Everest of its affection, a love that speaks of the agony that it's willing to endure to preserve and bring about the relationship. You think to yourself, no. That love does not exist. And friend, I'll tell you, that love does not exist in your spouse. That love does not exist in your friend. That love does not exist with your coworkers. That love does not exist in you. There is love in those places. But not this kind of love. That love is only from your creator. He's the one that loves you in a way that's enduring unbreakable, pure, and powerful. And I wonder, as you hear about this love, if it does not create a longing in your heart. I want to be loved like that. And maybe you feel that's unsafe. Maybe you feel that puts you in a, in a very vulnerable spot. I can't put myself to out like that, to be loved like that, to step in with that kind of affection. That's too risky. Friend, he won't wound you. He was wounded for you. He won't throw shame at you. He took your shame. Oh, he'll see your sin, and he'll say what? Forgiven. I pray if you hear and feel a longing in yourself for this kind of love, that you would come to him. Come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. How do you receive the love of God? You repent and you believe. The Bible makes it very simple. It's not a complex equation, but it's a hard step to take. Repentance says, I'm turning from sin, 
and I'm turning my life over to him. Belief means I believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for the forgiveness of my sin. You do those things, and the love of God will shower upon you in a way that you have never known. And that deep longing in your heart put there by your Creator will be satisfied. You'll be drinking from a well that you cannot contain. You would need eternity to enjoy it, and you'll have it. You'll have eternity to enjoy it. You'll never be able to drink it and say, mm, I'm satisfied. There is no break in the elation of the affection of the eternal God who says, I love you like the Creator loves the other Creator. Like, like Christ loves the Father, the Father loves the Son. I love you that much. That's an eternal love. And you will never ever reach the point of full satisfaction in that your hunger will grow, your desire will grow, your affection will grow, and all of eternity you will be filled over and over and over again in your satisfaction of that affection. It'll be like, I can't take more. He says, I got more for you. No more. I'm full. No. Give him another round of the eternal love for the Father. That's what you can experience. Love is a poetic and painful pursuit, and it will find everyone it's looking for. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Oh, Father, we thank you for the love that you shower upon us, the love that you give us. We are disarmed before you. We cannot hold our pride, nor can we hold up our resistance to this kind of affection. I can't put up my guard to say, no, don't love me like this. I'm blindsided by your love for me. I'm overwhelmed and satisfied. Oh, Father, we know that there are those out there around us, those we call friends, those in our family groups that don't yet know this love. Oh, that they would know it. Oh, that they would know it. Would you give us a sense of urgency? Or would you give us a sense of certainty that this mission will not fail? The shepherd will call all of his sheep to himself. They'll listen. They'll hear his voice. Father, let me not pray in panic. But let me pray with certainty of the power of your word, the power of your providence you will call your sheep to yourself. And oh, Father, I pray for those who don't yet know this affection and love, who may be hurt and wounded by those who said they love them, those who have turned their back on them, betrayed them, divorced them, abandoned them. May those scars not scar their eyes from seeing the love that you have for them. May, you, may they see that you have taken the wounds and you will love them in such a wonderful way. May they come to know you and come to know you today. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.